I've said many times, um, I don't speak more than um, 40 Sundays a year. I'm trying to get it back to 36, and once we get it back to 36, we'll get it back to 30. Um, That's my goal. I don't think anybody's interesting 52 weeks a year, um, and I think it ends up creating personal idolatry anyway. Um, So I've tried to teach this this church for the last four years to be really embracing of guest speakers and why that's important for me and for us. But it's also that we can hear from other people and hear what's on other people's hearts and like God can convict us from from people from the outside and all that. Um, Adam is the only guest speaker we've had in the last four years, of which the main comment was, um, you know, Nick, and sometimes when you're gone, I, we, I don't really like the guest speaker, but like anytime you want to be gone and we can have Adam, that'd be fine. So um, Adam's been working really hard this weekend. He met with our staff and some of our leaders on Friday. He's going to be meeting with our elders right after this service for lunch, talking about like how High Point can be a better disciple-making church um, and how we can be what we're called to be in Madison. Um, but he's also, he also is going to get a chance to, to preach just here now. Um, I met Adam when he was raising support to church plant in Edinburgh, Scotland, several years back when he was in his mid-20s and just as crazy. And um, over the course of a few years, he went. They planted two churches there. Um, Her Majesty did not see fit that they they should stay in the country any longer. But when they left, even after just a few years, they were able to leave those churches in the hands of people who got converted and discipled in those churches. That's unheard of turnaround, to raise up people who could be elders and leaders in a church after that short period of time. That means discipleship really happened. And then when they came back here, he sort of decided, like, what would be the most antagonistic place to the gospel he could possibly think of so he could plant a church? Because as you'll get to know Adam, you'll realize that he's— you know, on the bell curve, I'm the 98 percentile most combative person, and he's outside of me. So um, he picked Cambridge in Boston in Massachusetts between Harvard and MIT and Boston University, right smack in the middle of that stuff. And um, I got to this church, oh, it'll be four years ago in June, which is great. And in that time, our church has grown from about 350 people to a little over 500 generally on a Sunday morning which is really great. I mean, it's like awesome in in church world in America, right? Um, In that time, um, Adam went to Cambridge with nothing, um, and they now are having like 550 at their two services in in a second campus. So it just, it humiliates me in a good way. So I love being friends with Adam. He's like my, in some ways, my more accomplished younger brother, which is even more humiliating. So it's, um, it's really, it's been a really nourishing friendship, and I wanted you to get a chance to hear from Adam. So Adam, why don't you come and hit us over the head in a gracious way. I said in the first service that I uh, really like Nick. Hanging out with Nick makes me feel smart by association. I think it's part of God's sense of humor that he sent someone uh, who graduated with a music degree from state school to tell people at Harvard what to do. Um, And I really like that. I'm not going to lie. as, uh, as Nick said, my name's Adam. I've, um, uh, church planting is kind of all I've ever done, and the only uh, Kool-Aid I've ever drunk, the only uh, stuff that's really ever uh, passed between my ears, and so it's, it's a fun thing for me to get to do. Um, I'm, uh, and, and I'm very, very encouraged that uh, you have a great pastor here. Um, I, I said also in the first service that uh, Nick is actually one of the few people that I, I download their podcast. Um, podcasting is a thing, and you can download anybody, and, and he's actually one of the only ones I listen to. So you're immensely blessed each week to have a man like this who's, uh, you know, kind of a samurai with the Bible um, before you. I don't know if you have swords, but that would be a thing. That church growth would explode if you can make weaponry a thing. Don't, don't tweet that. Um, <laughs> um, 
I, I can also tell that Nick is an anointed preacher because he has a better wife than him. He married way above, and I feel bad for Lexi. I don't know if she knew, um, but this is part of how I know God is sovereign, that he blinded that woman to marry this man. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, a couple of years in, I'm sure there was like a, wait, what? What? Oh, no. Oh, well, some of us have to suffer for Jesus. And so you can pray for her. Um, no, I, I, I love their family. I love their kids. Um, <laughs> I, I really do love their family and their kids, and uh, it's fun to, to get to come and spend time with you guys. Um, today, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 8. We're going to talk this morning about great faith. I believe that your church uh, is positioned to do great things in your city. And so I, I, I've, I love to have fun, and I love to... Um, Joke, but I, I'm I'm deadly serious about what I'm going to unpack for you this morning. That I, I think High Point Church, I think your leadership, I think your staff, and I think your elders are poised to take this church in a place that Jesus is going to be really happy with, and in such a way that your city and your county can be changed for the glory of God and the good of all people. So let's go in our Bibles this morning to Matthew eight, chapter five or chapter eight, verse five. I will read, we will pray, and then get to work. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly, and he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word, and my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And at that moment, the servant was healed. God, we need your help this morning. Lord, I am asking that you would use my words to do something other than just communicate facts, but that you would use me to impart something of great faith into this house and into this spiritual family. I pray, God, that the result of this morning would be that some who walked in here and didn't know you have been uh, just radically born again, changed forever. Lord, I pray that some who are in here and they're stodgy in their faith, they're, they're, they're in the same kind of cul-de-sac of issues, Lord, that you would break them out of it. And God, I'm asking that you would take wherever we are, whoever we are, take us from that place where we are nearer to you, God, and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As uh, Nick said, I, um, I'm a church planter. That's kind of what I do. Um, and, uh, and, and it's fun, and I love it, and it's hard work, and it's what Jesus has called me to do. Uh, before we got to Boston, though, about uh, five years ago, I took a scouting trip there because I thought, well, if I'm going to go somewhere, I should maybe visit, right? Uh, the only other time I'd been to Boston was on a high school trip, and I was not paying attention. I know that's shocking for many of you who own high schoolers. Um, for any of you who are high schoolers, hi, welcome to church. Look up from your phone. Um, okay, um, I was looking at my Bible, I swear. Remember, lying in church is worse than normal. Okay, um, that's in the book of Hesitations. Uh, Nick will tell you about it later. Um, so 
I, I got to Boston and I, I emailed a bunch of other pastors and church planners in the area and said, hey, I'd love to get together with you and just hear about your experience and pick your brain and all of that. And, uh, and so I sat down with the first one and they were like, yeah, we, you know, Boston, four and a half million people, 2% of us know Jesus. So come on, we need your help. There's a big market share. We would love for you to come make a dent. Here's the deal though. It's going to be extremely hard and it probably won't work very well. Good luck. And I was like, nice talking to you too. And then I sat down with the next one and it was a similar story in the next one. And like five or six in, that was the repeated testimony that I heard over and over and over again. And I kind of got to the end of that trip and I was like, okay. And, and honestly, I was frustrated. I was frustrated because I just figured the God we Christians say at least we believe in is the same God who said a word and like the universe happened. Right, this universe that's something like 350, I think it's trillion years wide, and if you were to get in the Millennium Falcon on one side and start heading to the other, by the time you got there, it wouldn't be there because it would have expanded, right? With, with I mean, just an unbelievable number of stars and galaxies and like, like unimaginable power. This God, we at least say we believe he has, but like, oh, but people are in Boston, they're, they're mean, so that one might be too tough for the Lord. I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I just didn't buy it. I, I, was, I, I said, I, I do not believe that this God that I read about, one of these things is truer than the other. Either God is like this or, or he's not. But this God is not intimidated by this here. And so I started to ask and started to believe. And God, in, our, in the last three and a half years that my church has been open to the public, has done unimaginably more than I ever prayed he would. People are meeting Jesus. We have Harvard professors sitting next to addicts. We have young and old and black and white and brown and all over the city. And it's tough and it's messy and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And I, I'm praying that, it, you know, for the next 30 or 40 years, I, I really get to see God do some wonderful things and then I'll climb in the box and pass it on to somebody else. That, that's what I want. That's my life dream because, because God really can do this. And when I was praying for you, I had a whole different sermon set to bring to you, one that I'd already preached, so you'd be super impressed. Um, that was sort of a joke. Uh, <laughs> but, but when I was praying for you guys, the, the thing that really stirred in my heart was to impart this idea and the possibility of great faith. Great faith. Now, when we talk about great faith, uh, sometimes people ask, well, well, what do you mean, Pastor? Do you mean like great in quality or great in quantity? Do I, do I need 45 pounds of faith or I just need like really concentrated faith, right? Like what is it? And the answer that I have for you is yes. Yes, both. Yes, please. I want more and more of it. I want it to be better and I want to have gobs of it to spare. That's what I want you to have. I want you to have such unbelievable trust in God, the one that is revealed in Jesus Christ, that you can actually believe Madison, your neighborhood, your school, your husband and wife, your kids, your grandma, they can change. They can change. I'm here to tell you, God can do more than you think he can. He just can. He's more in control than you're comfortable with him being. He's more powerful than you would like for him to be. And he's better than you've ever dreamed. But to see him do those things requires great faith. 
great faith. Before we, uh, before we talk about what great faith is and what it looks like, though, let, let me get out of the way some things that great faith is not, okay? Because I think some of you may have at some point accidentally watched Christian television and gotten some bad ideas. Um, if that sounded mean, that was intentional. Um, uh, um, there's, there, there are some ditches on either side of the narrow street of great faith. And, and one of the first ditches uh, that, that we can fall into is, is thinking that faith is this tool, is this hammer that, that I get to whack on things that I really want. Right? Faith, like you get some faith. And so let's believe God for that job. Let's believe God for that money. Let's believe God for that car, that house, that spouse, that thing you really want. And so you show up at church to consume religious goods and services so that you can be a better Christian at lifting that faith thing and swinging that faith hammer at the thing you really want. The only problem with that version of religion is that it has nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. That's paganism. And so you know, totally different team. Christian faith is not a tool that you start whacking at things that you want. Faith, Christian faith, great faith, is trust in Jesus, the one who's most worthy of it. So while following Jesus, we trust that there's blessing for us. We are heirs with the promises of Abraham. God loves to give good gifts for his kids. No problem praying for any of those things like cars and houses and spouses and things like that. But those are side effects of following Jesus and are not necessarily promised. But here's what we know, that in the end, I get him and it's better than all of it. So I trust him. That's faith. And it's, it's not just this, this tool, tink, 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 at what you really want out of life. If that's what faith is to you, then you are an idolater and you need to repent. The other ditch, thinking faith is a tool, is thinking that faith is mere mental assent. Wayne Grudem, uh, one of Nick's professors and one of my favorite living theologians, has this great distinction. Uh, at least faith is, it involves at least three things, knowledge, approval, and trust. And so uh, some of us approach faith like, uh, like we would approach this stool. Like, I believe that is a stool. That, that's a stool. You know, yeah. Approval is, and I believe, I trust it can hold me up. Yeah. And then many of us stop there. But faith involves actually sitting on it. See, faith is not mere mental assent, not mere agreement, not mere signing at the bottom of the statement of faith so that you get to vote in the meeting this afternoon. Faith is trusting in the one who has proven himself worthy of your trust. That's what biblical faith is. It is fundamentally personal relationship. It's not blind, by the way, contrary to what the prognosticators of some vapid, happy form of atheism would say to you, it is not blind. Faith is not this, okay? Faith is trust in a person who's shown himself to be trustworthy. That person's name is God. So we trust him in the same way you trust your spouse or your mom or your dad or those who have always done what they say they're going to do. More often than not, you tend to trust them. Well, then we trust God because he's proven himself in the gospel to be really worthy of it, which we'll get to. So, why do you need great faith? Well, let's think about it here. If it's not to make me better and get what I really want out of life, what, what do we need faith for? Well, you need it to trust and know God, and you need it for the sake of others. I was doing a little bit of Wikipedia heavy lifting on your town here. You've got a quarter million people in Madison, almost 500,000-ish in the county, 50,000 students, and a lot of them don't know Jesus. This city, more than lots of others in the region here, swings a lot of cultural capital for the Midwest. 
And so for us to imagine like we're just going to show up to church, like check our religious box, feel better about ourselves, go home and then do whatever the heck we want to do, but feel all right about it because we're at church. That, that's not going to work. Because those people out there need you to have great faith. If the gospel, if the good news that Nick and Lloyd exposit for you every week, and if the good news that many of you in here believe and your elders are praying that you will own, if that good news of the gospel is going to have any effect outside of these walls, it will take not just them to have great faith, but you. Me? Yeah, you. That's why you need it. So what is it? Here in this passage, we see an unlikely candidate for great faith, don't we? I mean, if you watch any History Channel specials at all, then you know, like, Roman soldiers, not the nicest people in the world, okay? Especially to Jews in first century Palestine, like, there was some rebellions just before Jesus showed up, and, like, things were getting battened down pretty tight with the Roman authorities. It would be just a few decades more until Rome would swing down their major hammer of pain, knock over the temple, and things got real, real bad. Roman soldiers, not the greatest people in the world, certainly not the kind of people that we would think would have the type of faith that would make Jesus marvel. Side note, not in the message, be careful who you write out of the possibility of serving Jesus. I can't pay, pray for him because, I mean, look at him. He's, yeah, he'd never believe. Neither should have this guy. So we have a centurion walking up to Jesus and asking Jesus to do something unbelievable, which shows us a tension. I want to give you four tensions you have to hold together, you have to hold on to at the same time in order to have great faith rise in your heart, rise in your life, and rise in your church. Attention is this, sovereignty and responsibility. Sovereignty and responsibility, okay? That is, God is sovereign. He's the king, that's kingly language, which means God is in charge and in control of more things than any of us are really, really comfortable admitting. He is intimately involved with his creation, and this, this soldier, this Roman centurion, knew that in such a way that he walks up to Jesus and says, that guy over there, he's in charge of a lot of stuff, because I think if he says be healed over here, then my servant over there is going to be healed, and like the universe is going to obey this guy. God is sovereign. But the centurion didn't think God was so sovereign that he didn't have to ask him for anything. Hello? Right? I mean, like at some point, the centurion actually realized that sovereignty and responsibility were not mutually exclusive categories, but actually intimately connected in such a way where he needed to get up and go ask Jesus to do this very sovereign, very God-sized, completely impossible thing, namely heal his servant. Right? I mean, many of us, we, we approach missions or we approach the outward motion of the gospel like, oh yeah, God, God can do that. Absolutely. I'm just going to watch nine episodes of Duck Dynasty first. <sighs> Because God will do it, I mean, if he wants to. He's so sovereign. And that's what we do. And we never imagine that maybe in God's sovereignty, he has wired a universe to be that the means by which he gets his sovereign will done is through your obedience. And your pleading with heaven. Sovereignty and responsibility is completely necessary for great faith. This is contra the, you know, it's all up to you or it's all up to God. The answer is, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sure that Aletheia Church, the church I pastor, would not exist if I and some other people had not moved there. 
And I am sure that Aletheia Church would not exist if God had not done amazing things. If I ever write a book about church planning, it's going to be called Sovereign Church Planning, All the Stuff God Does That I Didn't Control. <laughs> Sovereignty and responsibility. The second tension I want you to hold together is us and you. Us and you. Just so you know, you are Westerners who live in the United States, which is the capital of individualism, okay? So sometimes we need to know that just so that we can kind of be shaken out of the water we all swim in. But we approach Christianity like individual consumers of religious goods and services, okay? So we show up at church and go, nom, 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 Bible, nom, 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 really delicious, awesome teaching from Nick, nom, 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 worship and youth ministry or whatever. And then we go home, bellies full, thinking that's it. But the idea isn't that it's just about you, it's about us. It's not so much about us that it's not about you. It's about us and you. It's about me and, as we say where I grew up, y'all. <laughs> it's about us and you and me. The individual and the community are, are held in tension together. And we know that because that's how God is, by the way. God is unity in community, in unity, in community. If you start thinking about the Trinity for too long, your brain will explode, right? But this is how God is. God is one and three, and that should tell us something about the way we are to interact and the way faith should work. Why is this important? Because at some point, it's going to be really hard for you, and you'll need us. And at some point, it's going to be really hard for us, and we're going to need you. Do you see how this works? This, this thing of church planting has sent me through at least two death spirals of, like, depression and wanting to just leave and go do something else entirely. And in those moments, I'm so grateful for the men and women of God and my spiritual family who grabbed me by the nape of my neck, made me read my Bible, made me fall out of agreement with my emotions, made me trust God, and come out of that thing and go, okay, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm up, I'm out, I'm out. You are crazy if you think you can do this alone. And you're arrogant. And probably stupid. And you're crazy if you think we don't need you. See, this is, um, it sounds humble to say, oh, well, I mean, high point. They got things going. Like, they don't need me. That's actually a very subtle form of pride. A very subtle form of self-deception. Because God says that we need you. Who are you to disagree with him? I mean, you, you can't read 1 Corinthians, you can't read Romans 12 and think like, oh, I'm, I'm not, I mean, me, they don't need me. By me, the Bible doesn't mean me, it means others other than me. That's, no, we need you, and you need us. This is why I, I, my favorite moniker for church is spiritual family. I love it. I love spiritual family. I love that I'm a part of something greater than myself, and yet I am very, very important to it. And so is everybody else. There are no rock stars in this thing. There's no one who's more important than another. And it's all about Jesus. I love that. Great faith requires you to understand that you're important and so are we. And we have to hold that together. So the first tension was sovereignty and responsibility. The second tension was us and you. The third tension, word and spirit. Word and spirit. This is kind of amazing to me that the centurion rocks up to Jesus and says, listen, I'm a man under authority. I understand you got some authority. I say to my servant, go, he goes. I'll bet if you say be healed, my servant will be healed. How did this work for this man? Well, he must have heard something about Jesus, right? That's what the Bible is, okay? The Bible is not a, you know, 66 books written across three continents over 1,500 years and three different languages across 40 human authors so that you could have your best life, 
It's not about you. It's about the first person who shows up in the Bible, which if you read it in Hebrew, is God. God. This book is God's revelation of himself. It's words about God so that you can know the kind of God we're inviting you to trust and inviting you to follow and inviting you to lay your life down for and give your money for and give your time for. Word. And spirit. In American evangelicalism, church these days, I mean, we say the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we treat the Holy Spirit like that weird guy at the family reunion. You know what I'm talking about? You're not laughing. Are you the weird people at the family reunion? Is that the thing? Okay. You know, like, oh, hey, oh, I'm stuck next to Uncle Bob. Oh, hey, buddy. You know, that's what we treat the Holy Spirit like. So it's Father, Son, and... But great faith requires us to understand that the Holy Spirit wrote a book and then didn't die. (laughs) The Holy Spirit wrote a book. It, It reveals to us who God is. Jesus Christ comes as the incarnate word of God and then says some crazy words like, I'm gonna leave and it's actually gonna be better for you that I go and that I'm not here with you because I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit, the comforter, to be with you and illuminate the words that I said and everything that I did so that my presence will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Great faith requires you to understand the word of God illuminated by the spirit of God to believe that the power of God could happen in God's world today. It can totally happen. It can totally happen. One of the fun things about my job is that I get to be repeatedly surprised at what God does. Right? I get to be repeatedly surprised at what God does. I get to watch God just through my, frankly, you know, pretty mediocre preaching. We meet in a very lame room, a very lame room with bad air conditioning. It sounds awful. I'm having major building envy, I'm not going to lie, because you own one. I have a YMCA gym. It's ugly. And by ugly, I mean ugly, okay? Like we painted it just to dial back the, huh, when you walk in, you know? <laughs> we said we were serving them, but honestly, it was a little self-serving too because we're like, we have to have church here and it's nine different shades of awful in here. But I get to watch God do all kinds of things. It's one of the fun parts about being in the church is that over and over and over again, you get to watch people get their lives radically transformed by the gospel. That's because the Holy Spirit's alive and well. And for you to have great faith, you must hold on to the word of God and believe that the spirit of God is living and active. Because if you don't, who do you think saves the lost and heals the broken and binds up the hurting exactly? It's word and spirit. Even the centurion understood that there was some kind of invisible something going on to where Jesus could say a word over here and something beautiful could happen over here. The fourth tension I want to give you is, that, is this worse and better. Worse and better. For you to have biblical faith, you have to believe that things are worse than you would like to think they are and God will make it better than you can imagine. Sometimes we imagine biblical faith as being a form of like sympathetic magic to where like if we, if we admit anything is wrong or anything hurts or anything is bad, then oh, we jinxed it, right? So like things can be falling apart in our lives, but we've been taught that like, well, if you say that, then, you know, you're going to curse it because of some reason, book of hesitations, chapter, whatever, right? And so we, we treat faith as though to have it means to never come to terms with reality, That's not true. 
That, that's not faith. I, I don't know what that is. Delusion, stupidity, take your pick. But it's not faith. Because all the examples of faith, the, the two big ones we get are Abraham and, and Jesus. And, and Abraham, we're told, he looked at his body and said it was as good as dead. He looked at himself. God gave him a promise. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And he looked at himself at 100 or almost 100, and he was like, well, basically dead. And he looked at his wife and in a Hallmark moment said, she's definitely past her sell-by date, so I guess you can raise the dead. Right? I guess you can raise the dead. That was faith. Abraham came to terms with how bad reality was and then reckoned that God was able to do more than he was currently then able to imagine. That's biblical faith. Biblical faith requires you to look at Madison and go, it's probably worse than stats say. It's probably uglier than I imagine it is when I pull up to my nice, safe subdivision. It's probably not as nice as people are on the street. One of the nice things about living in a city on the East Coast like Boston is there's very little difference between what you imagine it to be and then what it actually is, right? Because we don't have a thin veneer or a thick veneer of politeness. Maybe you've heard of that. Um, <laughs> basically, people treat you to your face as they do here in their cars. You know what I'm saying? Here in places like the Midwest and the South, we're only ugly behind the wheel. No? You're not going to admit that? Lying in church, guys. Lying in church. It's not cool. It's not cool. We'll have an altar call later. Okay. <laughs> But it's a little easier to come to terms with the fact like, wow, Boston's really, 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 really messed up because it's just you interact with it all the time. You can't not. And here we can kind of begin to fool ourselves like, well, we're pretty nice people. Really? No, because you're human too. You're human too. It's probably worse here than you think it is. There's probably more brokenness, more addiction, more sexual depravity, more confusion about what a human being is, more confusion about what gender means, more confusion about how society is meant to work, more confusion about money and wealth and kids and poverty and riches than you think. And God can do more with that than you imagine he can. My family is like a Jerry Springer episode in slow motion. Or at least it was. I was growing up and um, we, had, we had money, so we were able to kind of cake our problems with the appearance of success. My father and mother were very broken. There was alcoholism and there was abuse and there was cheating and then my sister was a drug addict and I just didn't know anything was wrong with it because when you were raised in that kind of muck, you just assume it's normal. Then I had a friend invite me to a camp and frankly, it could have been an Al-Qaeda training camp and I would have gone. So I just wanted to leave. <laughs> Honesty moment. But it happened to be a Christian camp, and, um, and I showed up, and the music was lame, and the activities were dumb, and people were weird. But on the fifth day, the fifth day, God cracked open my cynical, hard heart, and I heard the gospel, and I repented, and I believed. And I came home, and it was like scales fell off my eyes, and I was like, wow, it is worse than I thought. I can believe that there's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, because I'm pretty sure we all deserve to go there. Just a 12-year-old had no problem believing in that. And I began to ask God, like, God, save my dad, save my mom, work in my sister, like, help us somehow. And he didn't for years. And so I just assumed it probably wasn't going to happen. I was largely undiscipled. It just, and so I, I went into my teenage years, as many young teenage dudes do, doing what young teenage men do. And out of nowhere, in like a six-month span, my dad and his girlfriend walk into a church to get radically born again, delivered from years of substance abuse, baptized, comes and makes peace with my mom who marries an elder in the Presbyterian church where I was going. 
And then a few months later, my sister pulls up, admits her drug addictions, enters into rehab, and becomes one of the 3% of addicts who actually make it out on the first go, never to return again. God delivered my family. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is kind of awesome. I could get into this business of seeing this happen. And, and, and like the ceiling of what God could do, of possibility, was really lifted for me. And I tell you that not to, so that you go, oh wow, Adam's really great. Are you kidding me? Like if you could meet me at 16, you would go, wow, and you became a pastor. Huh. <laughs> there are some people who walked into my church from my high school days, just randomly, they showed up at Harvard to do a degree, and they, I, they didn't realize that I was a pastor, and they walked in, they're like, Adam, what are you doing here? I was the pastor, and they go, really? <laughs> you could tell what they were thinking was, I guess they're letting anybody do that now. <laughs> there must be really low recruitment rates, huh? Okay. Huh. <laughs> That's the response over and over again. But God did something wonderful, and I tell you that story just to lift the lid, maybe, on what you believe is possible. Because it's easy to let your eyes be the ceiling for what God can do. Well, we don't see massive revival. We don't see a thousand people in this room yet. Then you're seeing with the wrong eyes. You're seeing with the wrong eyes. I'm so glad Jesus could see what wasn't there yet. I'm so glad that when God rescues a broken person like me, he sees what I could be. And like you, he sees what you could be. He sees not only how jacked up you are today, but how beautiful you will be then. And he's willing to hang with you and hold you and stand with you even as you turn your back on him. I love that. I'm glad that God trusts in his own power to save a wretch like me. Why don't we trust him in the same degree? Requires great faith, great in quality, great in quantity. So how are we going to do that? Well, the first is we have to repent of, of this, the, these ditches. Repent. We've got to turn our back on the belief that faith is really just knowledge. It's Gnosticism, right? So some of us treat Christianity like Gnosticism. Gnosticism is an ancient heresy that worked like this. You had to know the secret handshake and the wink and like have the secret knowledge. And the more secret extra stuff you knew, the better you were. And the more you could look down your nose at other people, right? We treat Christianity the same way. Because like, ooh, he knows Greek. Mm. Wow. Yeah, he's been at this a while. Oh, he went to seminary. Oh, he's, he sounds smart. He's impressing people with these things in the water cooler. Ooh, when she prays, this happened, right? You see how this works. That is not what faith is. And so we've got to repent of this, this false belief that being a Christian is somehow progressing in our knowledge alone. Listen, I believe in great theology. I love the fact that God let me go to seminary. I love knowing men like your pastor because God has given him an unbelievable mind to consume and synthesize great information and then to bring it to you and me in such a way that we can get it. You should praise God for that because there are a lot of people who stand behind pulpits every Sunday that cannot do anything like that and give to their people something on the order of mush. Praise God for your pastor. But he doesn't do that so that you can think that Christianity and discipleship and great faith is about just filling your mind with true facts about God. We fill our minds with true facts about God so that we'll know more about Him, fall more in love with Him, and trust Him more. The reason we have info about God is to know, wow, He's really worthy of my trust. 
The gospel is the story of everything God has done in history to reconcile me and you to him. And if that's what God has done, if God really did come in the likeness of sinful flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and really did live perfectly where you and I could not, really did die substitutionarily in my place where you and I would not, and really did rise again, overcoming sin, Satan, death, demons, hell, and the grave where you and I could not, then we should trust a God like that. He's proven himself infinitely worthy of it. So we can and we ought to. That's the call of the gospel and that's the discipline of good theology, but we can't only think that it's about knowledge. uh, Similar to that. We gotta repent of fear. See, some of us, our problem is that we know too much. Others of us, our problem is that we feel too much. And so we look out at, at the world, the big, bad, scary world, and we go, ugh. I'm terrified, terrified what's going to happen if those people walk in my nice, clean church with their terrible ideas and their terrible mouths and their terrible thoughts. You have to turn your back on that. It's going to turn into a beautiful mess in this room if God has his way and you have great faith. It's going to turn into a wonderful, beautiful mess. That's how you know you're doing it right. I mean, look at the early church. My gosh. These people were Christians for like nine and a half minutes, and then they were deacons. <laughs> right? It's like Jesus rose, and then there were a few weeks, and it's like, wait, I'm, Pat, I'm the Pat? Where'd everybody go? Oh, gee. And that's it. That's how it worked. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta take the lid off our fear. We gotta turn our back on our fear and trust that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we think that he can. We've got to trust in the God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. We have to hold the tension of sovereignty and responsibility. We've got to hold the tension of us and me. We've got to hold the tension of what could possibly be and what we're afraid to admit. We've got to hold the tension of word and spirit. And we've got to understand that it's probably going to get worse and better. When you start having great faith, you're going to get friction. You're going to get mean articles in the paper and nasty emails. And then you're going to get people going, I'm so glad I met you. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And you led me to him. Thank you. That's how you know you're doing it right. But in order to walk through that, it's going to require great faith. Or we can just anesthetize ourselves with comfortable Christian experience and hope we haven't so vaccinated ourselves against the gospel that we don't spend eternity saying to Jesus, but Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and do many great things and go to many work days and attend church a lot and give much money? Because he may say, I have no idea who you are. That should terrify you a little bit and unsettle you enough to go, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Give me greater faith, greater trust in a greater Jesus than I currently believe you are and know you to be. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for my friends in here today who are Christians, and they know you, they love you, they attend this church, some of them longer than I've been alive. Lord, I'm asking that you would, by your spirit and by your power, do something on the inside of them that causes faith to rise in quality and quantity. God, I'm asking, Lord, that you would, um, you would unsettle us. Lord, some of us have just gotten so distracted. It's so easy to get distracted by life and bills and kids and stuff. And I pray, Lord, that you would just quiet those things for a moment and give us 
great faith, that that's you this morning and you're a man or woman of God and you're just saying, Lord, I believe, I just help my unbelief, increase my faith. I want you to pray this with me. Jesus, increase my faith. Help me today. Stir something up on the inside of me. Maybe you're terrified or maybe you thought you knew it all. I want you to put your face to Jesus and your back to your fears and your knowledge and ask him to come and just turn up the volume and the intensity of your faith. Maybe there are some of you in this morning who've never, ever actually put your trust in Jesus. You realize you agree with him. You maybe acknowledge him, but you've never actually trusted in Jesus, relied on Jesus, given the keys to your life to Jesus. And today could be that day for you. Oh God, I pray it would be. Today could be that day for some of you. If that's you this morning and the Lord is just stirring something in your heart, I want you to pray this with me. Jesus, I trust you. I believe you lived and died and rose and I'm asking you, God, to be my Lord, my Savior, my Master, my Treasure, my Friend. Save me. I believe you can and believe that you will. Now, God, bless these people and just turn up the volume of their faith for the glory of God and the good of all people. Amen. Thank you, Adam. Would you stand with us? We're going to sing one more song here before we go.